0: Morning. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to First Peter and Titus. And while you're turning in your New Testament to First Peter and Titus, I want to fill you in on just a couple of things. Um, beginning January the first, I will start my fifteenth year on staff here at New Hope. Um, just finishing fourteen years, and very grateful. I've never lived anywhere longer than I've lived here, uh, so that's been an interesting uh, part of my story. And the reason I tell you that is for the last six of those years, I've got the pleasure of serving uh, as the lead minister here at New Hope in this role on staff. And one of the earliest things I learned on staff was very humbling. Um, I learned when I got here, we entered into this initiative, and there's more to the story, but here's the lesson that I learned pretty early on in this new role. In an age where the church is known for marketing-type communication, only tell people what they want to know or what they need to know, when they need to know it, kind of pull back on some communication, only reveal something. I learned that that's not what new hope is about. Uh, As a matter of fact, um, one of the things that we learned that was just a beautiful lesson is the need for, which then became a value for transparency, to just always be open and honest because we are a church family. We are all one church family, and so having conversations like that are important. I say that for a couple reasons. There are times we just have to have conversations about things that normally would be uncomfortable, but in the context of a family are pretty normal, one of them being money. So to talk about that, uh, I want to let you know about our fiscal year here at New Hope. Our fiscal year as a church family runs from December the 1st through November the 30th. You're like that's a little weird that 's not what people normally do, and you 're right. it is weird, but it 's what New Hope has been doing for a long time, and it works pretty well because year end giving plays a very big role in our annual budget, and so what you and your family pray about, plan, and give goes toward our annual budget at the end of every year and so I want you to know that for two reasons: one, just transparency as you give at the end of the year, it really helps us in the next year as ministry together as a church family. Number two, though, is a few weeks back, a couple months ago, we as a church family voted with 99% approval to move forward into what we will have as a capital campaign or an initiative, whatever language makes you feel best about that. And as a part of that, we are going to be adding on to this building, and that project is going to cost $9 million, right? Again, just being transparent, that's a big bill, uh, And so, we have some goals around this that you'll hear more about as they're developed. Uh, But the number one goal is uh, 100% participation. We want the entire church family to be a part of this initiative, genuinely, like sincerely. Number two is we'd love to do this project debt free. So, in January, we're going to need some information. We're going to have a time of commitment where, as a church family, we all commit to a two year process, a two year giving uh, commitment to that project in particular. And over the course of two years, we're going to ask everybody to commit to that. Now, your commitment will be in writing and turned in, but not with your name on it. It's going to be anonymous. We're not asking for your information so we can do that like, hey, you gave this much and you like, "Ah," like, we don't like that. And so it's anonymous, but it's needed for accounting and financing purposes. Like we need to know what the church family is committed to doing toward this project. And so that's coming in January. So if you've already given to the initiative, right, because you heard of the 99% approval and all that, that's great. We would just ask on that commitment day, when we all commit together to what we're going to do for two years, just write what you've already given and what you plan to give into the future. Again, that can feel weird to talk about, but transparently, that's just a part of life together as a church family. And so if you have questions, right, or you want more information because you weren't here for certain parts You can come and talk to me, or if you want to look on our website, all of our elders, their pictures are there on the website. Find them at the church. We would love to schedule just any time you need to sit down and answer whatever questions that you have, whatever information that you would like to have about that. So let's pray, and we'll jump in this morning. Father, thank you uh, for, like Ben said earlier, just allowing us to be a part of such a generous church family. Just thank you for the work that you're doing. Amongst us, and what you're calling us to do into the future so that people would come to know who you are. God, we love you and we thank you um, for your faithfulness to us, your presence this morning. As we turn our attention to your word, our prayer is that your will would be done. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know uh, if this will ever happen to you. In fact, I would um, probably uh, guess it won't, but if you ever find yourself, in an avalanche, right? So like this type of a scene, right? You go skiing with your family and here comes an avalanche. You're five times more likely to die from getting hit in the head by a coconut. But just in case you find yourself in an avalanche, I want to prepare you for that, okay? If you find yourself in an avalanche, it has been proven that what is most important for you to know is spit before you dig, all right? Spit before you If you're taking notes, that's your notes for today, right? Spit before you dig. You see, most people, when they find themselves in an avalanche, they panic. And if you know anything about me, right, over these 14 plus years now, you know I'll never be in a scene like that, right? I don't like snow. And so I'll never be there. Uh, And avalanches can't happen in Indiana. It's like Florida with snow. It's horrible. It's flat. So I'll never be in that situation. But if you find yourself in that situation, you would do what I would do if I was in that situation, I'm sure, and panic. Most people do. And they begin to just dig. they got to get out of this. And they begin to really go crazy and covered up and not knowing what to do. They panic and just begin to dig. In fact, in 2012, the LA Times did an article about a guy who found himself in just this situation. And he began to dig frantically to get out. But because of the disorientation that takes place in an avalanche, he ended up digging himself 30 feet deeper into the avalanche instead of digging himself out of it. And so, psychology today, among many, I geeked out this week, okay? A lot of other articles you can look up for this kind of theory around spit before you dig. It's all based on the law of gravity. If you find yourself in an avalanche and you clear some space in front of your face and you spit, it tells you which way you're directed. So if you spit and it goes down, you're upside down. And you don't want to dig in that direction. If you're sideways, it kind of goes off to the side, You know you're sideways in this avalanche. And in fact, if you clear some space and spit and it falls back into your face again, welcome to church today then you know you're headed in the right direction and you can dig your way out of the avalanche. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because we live in a world, spiritually speaking, that is completely lost when it comes to their sense of spiritual direction. I mean, when it comes to knowing the difference between right and wrong, what God's word says about how to live their lives are just completely turned upside down, and they put their hope in all kinds of different things. And when they find themselves, whether it's a relational, emotional, spiritual avalanche, when things aren't going the way they had planned, when everything goes bad, when you walk through a season of pain, suffering, difficulty, tragedy, despair, they panic, right? And the world around us begins to panic and tries to find any hope it can for the quickest resolution to the problem possible, and all the while they're digging deeper and deeper into despair. And as a pastor, I've noticed a couple different things that I've seen as people begin to put their hope in things that will just lead them further into despair. And your list will include other things. But for me, what I've noticed is probably one of the top ones is money. We put so much of our hope into what money can do for us that when we're going through difficulty, we have coined a phrase called retail therapy because we have convinced ourselves, if I can buy this thing, If I can go shopping at this store, if we can save up for this big purchase, if we can get to this financial milestone, then somehow it's going to help us fix the pain and brokenness that we're experiencing in our family, in my personal life right now. I mean, we even have a phrase for it. And I've watched people spiral their life further and further into despair, all because of the false hope of money. Look, no gift, no purchase. No Christmas present can bear the weight of the pain that you experience in this life, period. But the other thing that I've noticed lately, if you will, that's a prevalent false hope that people panic when they're in that avalanche of difficulty is image. And this one can be tricky, right? Because we believe, we put our hope in this idea that if my family will look this certain way, behave this certain way, if we can present this certain image to the friends and family and world around us, that somehow things won't hurt as bad. Things won't be as difficult. And so we pride ourselves on certain things and we portray ourselves a certain way, right? If we can be, always know the latest scoop about everyone else's life, if we can be the family that knows everything about everybody else, If I can be the family that presents that perfect life, right? If I can be the person who's everybody's favorite person, if I can have the perfect kids and the perfect marriage, or what I've noticed lately is this. If I can present to the world a not-so-perfect kid and a not-so-perfect marriage under the pretense of looking as though I'm real, this is real life, and and, and we're not perfect, but we're going to show off the fact that we're not perfect because somehow we think it makes us feel better about the brokenness we're actually experiencing. You see, we put our hope in all kinds of things. You could add to that list easily. And spiritually speaking, the source of where you place your hope, and I'm confident you've experienced this in your life, like I have, will either lead you out of despair or spiraling further and deeper into it. Where you place your hope determines where your life is headed. What you believe about life, about the future and where you place your ultimate hope will either lead you further into despair or help lead you out of it. So the next logical question is then what is hope? What is it hope? What does it mean, biblically speaking? Well, the Bible uses a lot of different adjectives to help us understand what hope is in terms of what the Bible says about it. But before we get there, I want to make a distinguishment. We're in a series called Waiting for a Savior. Typically, if you're new to our church, we will walk through just books of the Bible. In fact, January the 1st, we launch into a sermon series that I don't even know how long it's going to be on the Gospel of John. But as we end the year in this Advent season, preparing for Christmas, we wanted to look at the biblical theme of waiting. What does it mean to wait? And today, the first part of Advent is what does it mean to wait with hope, right? And so I want to talk about what hope is not just a little bit in the series. I don't know about you, though. How many people, this is your favorite time of the year? Own it. Like, you're not even, like, sure. Maybe. Is this a trick? It's not a trick. Don't overthink it. Is this your favorite? T- How many of you are like, eh, I want spring? Woo, the same people raise their hands. <laughs> that was great. Well, I love this time of the year for a lot of reasons, and I don't love it for others. But one of the reasons I really love this time of the year is the sweets. I've got a big sweet tooth. Do I have any fellow sweet tooth people? And I love Christmas gatherings, family gatherings, staff gatherings, any other gathering that's going to get me more sweets. And one of the things I really love about Christmas is something that my whole family does not love, okay? And it's a Christmas drink that comes around this time of the year. I love eggnog, all right? All right. It's an acquired awkward taste, but there's just something about, right? Milk with a bunch of eggs and sugar. And I don't know what it is, but it just tastes great to me. Anybody else love eggnog? Raise your hand. Own it. Anybody like, I think I'm not going to listen to the sermon anymore. I think I'm done, right? I love eggnog, right? And I, I would take a sip, but I'm like, ah, could I finish the sermon? I don't, I don't know, but I love it. And so As I poured this cup of eggnog, this wonderful Christmas drink, and I ask you to describe for me the cup, the glass that it's in, how would you describe this? Some of you would say, well, that cup is half... Okay, let's try again. That was weak. (laughs) Be honest. You would describe this cup as being half... Okay, that's a little more confident than the first service. Or you might be someone who would describe this cup as being half... Okay, so... Own your response on three. Ready? This cup is half. One, two, three. Full. Oh, I got a couple empties. All right. Like, it's a little bit confusing. It's very telling. It tells me a lot about the church, okay? This is just a test for me, right? Uh, again, geeking out on how this all worked this week. This is a wonderful test. There are people in life that would describe life as being a cup that seems to be half full. Others would describe it as, no, the cup is half full empty. And then the engineers in the room would be like, uh, I went to Purdue and that cup's full all the way. It's half air and half eggnog. Okay. (laughs) Like I get it. I get it. All right. Yeah. I got it. Okay. But this test reveals, (laughs) there's a lot of Purdue people in here. (laughs) Uh, This test reveals uh, what we commonly associate with what we call optimism and pessimism. Optimism, um, according to many different uh, like tests and articles that I read uh, this past week. Again, I, I had a lot of fun understanding this. Uh, but psychology today really summarizes it well. Optimism is looking at life through rose-colored lenses. If something can go right, it will. If things are bad, give it time. Things always end well. Pessimism, on the other hand, is gloom and doom at every corner. Right? The glass is always half empty. And if things are going well right now, give it time because they never end well. Right? And you're like pointing at the people next to you, optimist, pessimist. Right? So let me ask you this. Where on that spectrum should followers of Jesus fall? You're like, it's a trick question. Don't answer it. (laughs) Because when I look at the scriptures, right, it would make sense to come to the conclusion that we don't want to be pessimists. Doom and gloom, right? We would be more optimists. Well, Jesus came and defeated death and resurrected and our future secured because of him. And so as a result of that, like I should always be optimistic about everything. And yet, the more you study optimism, the more you come to understand that it's actually a dangerous path to go down. Many psychologists will tell you that optimism really is dangerous for two reasons. It causes the person who takes on that view of the world to minimize two things, risks, okay? And so they don't want to uh, acknowledge the risks. And the second thing being reality. They like to ignore certain parts of reality to try their best to look at the good side of things. And when I read the Bible, when I look at the scriptures, we're never called to do that. We're never called to ignore risks in life. Many people call it blind faith, just take a leap of faith. Well, the Bible doesn't use that kind of language. It never tells us to turn our brain off. It never tells us not to be like good thinkers about what we're about to uh, embark on. And likewise, the Bible never calls us to ignore the pain of our current situations and realities. It never tells us to don't worry about how bad that hurts and just ignore that reality and just be a positive thinker. The Bible doesn't call us to do that. The Bible doesn't call us to be optimist or pessimists. The Bible calls us to live with what it calls hope. To live with hope. And that hope is described in multiple different ways in your Bible. But there's two that I want to focus on this morning. One that comes from the Apostle Peter and the other comes from the Apostle Paul. And they both describe hope in a way that really makes a lot of sense for us as we are waiting for the final coming of our Savior. They're going to root it in the same reality and they're going to pull two different applications from it. The first up is Peter. Peter's writing his letter, 1 Peter, to a group of five Roman provinces these five different provinces had multiple churches in them that were experiencing heavy persecution from the Roman authorities. So to be a Christian in their world made your life a lot harder. It singled you out. And so they would be, they would be targeted for persecution, physical persecution, employment persecution, emotional persecution. They were mistreated. They were pushed to the side. They were physically beaten and oftentimes killed because they followed Jesus. And no matter who you are, If you walk through enough pain, it takes its toll. You begin to lose hope. That's where we get that phrase. You begin to have your vision toward your future, no matter how secure you believe it is, get clouded by the pain. And you need these reminders to come in and remind you where that hope is rooted. And that's what Peter's doing. Peter writes to a group of beaten up, worn out Christians who had experienced pain and suffering. Very similar to what we would experience in this world, but different. Different in that we're not experiencing physical persecution, but we, as believers, still experience pain and suffering in our lives. And I can tell you, if I look at the survey of just what 2022 has brought to our church family, there's been loss. People have died way before they should have. There has been employment changes. There's been financial struggles. There's been marital conflict. There's been poor decision-making from children that has weighed heavily on their parents. So you don't have a church family that doesn't experience suffering and pain. And the Bible tells us don't ignore that. But there is something you need to keep in mind as you walk through it. And Peter offers us the reminder of what hope does to help us endure suffering. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope The proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the question that comes up is the way in which... Peter describes hope is this word living. You have a living hope. So what is hope at its core? Well, hope is this conviction about something that's going to happen in the future. You can hope in a lot of different things, right? You can hope, and I will reserve my comment to get back at the Purdue. You can hope in a lot of things, right? Fill in the blank. You can hope that certain things will happen in the future, right, and all sorts of things. If I wake up, tomorrow morning, and I hope that the sun will rise. That hope is not built simply on some sort of knowledge that I have from the future. My hope that the sun will rise on Monday morning is based on the fact that every other day of my life on this earth, the sun has risen. And so because of my understanding, my experience, what I know about what has taken place, my hope that the sun will rise on Monday morning is secure. I can believe with confidence that the sun's going to come up tomorrow morning because of what I've been through every other part of my life, because of what I've seen, because of what I know about how the world works. And for Peter, he says, you have a living hope. And that living hope is for a future. And he describes that future. You get an inheritance. And that inheritance cannot be touched by any suffering or pain that you walk through in this life. There's nothing that the enemy can do to destroy the inheritance that's waiting for you, okay? You can make choices that might ruin it. You have a a free will that can play a factor in this. But there's nothing that the enemy can do to destroy an inheritance that can't be touched by him. And that future can be secured for you. He says, but it's rooted not just in some future knowledge that we have, It's rooted in what we already know to be true, and he roots it in this. He says, you have a living hope that is rooted in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. So what he says is, because of the first coming of Jesus, his birth, what we celebrate at Christmas, his life, his death and resurrection that we celebrate at Easter, because of that truth, you can wake up every day knowing that your future is secure. And you can place your hope in that secure future because you understand what Jesus has already done for you. Peter describes it, what we call the already, not yet. See, we live in this time in in history where we live in the already. Jesus has already come, but not yet returned. And we live in the middle of that. And he says in the middle of that, it gets really hard. People die. Decisions are made that hurt you. Relationships experience conflict that create pain that you carry with you. And Peter says, you're going to walk through suffering, living in the already not yet. It will not be easy. Anyone who tells you that following Jesus makes your life easier is a liar. It doesn't make your life easier. But Peter says, in the midst of that suffering, you've been given this gift, this living hope that exists right now. In that already, not yet, you have a living hope and understanding that he will come like he has promised to come. Why? Because he came like he promised to come before. So he's going to come like he promised to come again. And he will wipe every tear, every tear that you've ever shed for every pain that you've ever experienced. He will right every wrong that you have committed and that has been committed against you. He will return. And he will make it right. But while you wait, you cling to that hope. Peter says we have a living hope that helps us endure pain and suffering. The apostle Paul offers us another angle on that hope. Right? Paul offers us this angle on hope that's not just a living hope that will help us endure. But Paul calls it a blessed hope that helps us overcome. And so Paul's writing to a different group of people. Let's read what he has to say. Again, I'm sorry, but it makes me know you're awake. Would you stand for the reading of God's word out of Titus chapter two, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes these words to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is God's word. You can be seated. So Peter tells us that our hope is a living hope that helps us endure suffering, pain, and difficulty in this life. Something we can all relate to. Paul adds to it and says, no, you also have a blessed hope that helps you overcome temptation and difficulty in this life now. See, Paul was writing to uh, Titus, who was ministering to a group of people living in a place called Crete. It's this island that was one of the most sexually explicit barbaric living places in in all of history. They formed all of their living around the worship of the Greek God Zeus. They pursued power and pleasure at all costs. This is what they did with their lives. And so their behavior was just everything that did not line up with the truth of what Paul had taught Titus to teach them about the way of Jesus. And so they would pursue all of these things. And here was where the problem came in. Many of the Christians began to adopt this lifestyle. They completely divorced what they knew to be true from their behavior. And many of the non-Christians would look at that and say, why in the world would I want Jesus? It's made no difference in their life. They live and behave just like we do. And you learn a really important thing when you read through this letter that Paul wrote to Titus. You learn that God did save us because of his grace from the penalty of sin. We are all sinners. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. And because Jesus did not sin and he lived the life you couldn't live, died and resurrected from the dead, he has paid the penalty for your sin. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. And then Paul says there's coming a day when Jesus will return and you will be saved from the very presence of sin. There is coming a day when sin will be gone altogether. And in that already and that not yet, we're still surrounded by the power of sin all around us. And it tempts us to go astray from what we know to be true, to not be faithful to what we've been called to. And so look at how the apostle Paul describes this. If you just march through this passage, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, meaning so anything else he's about to talk to is rooted in this reality. He's already come. He lived, he died, he resurrected all of my hope for anything I'm about to talk about is rooted in a reality that already took place. Verse 12, that reality, if you have sincerely placed faith in Jesus, if you are sincerely following after him, placed your life underneath his lordship. In other words, if you're a Christian, if you're really a Christian, you're called to live different, even when you don't want to. Make decisions that might be really, really hard in the culture and world that we live in not give in to just whatever you want, not define your life the way you want to define it, but define it the way that he has called you to define it. And so verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And then verse 13, and all of this we're doing, we're waiting while waiting for his return Because he's going to fix everything that sin is destroying right now. And I long for the day when he returns. That's what Advent is all about. We long for the day when Jesus returns and fixes everything that sin has broken. And in the meantime, while we're waiting, we must wait actively. You see, the truth of Jesus's final coming is not just about your future. It also impacts your present. It has to impact your present life. Or it's not sincere. Everything about what you long for in the future impacts the way that you live now, the decisions that you make now in your life. And so Paul describes this hope as a blessed hope because it allows us to overcome. Peter says the hope you have in this Advent season of waiting for your Savior gives you the ability, the power to endure lots of pain and suffering. Paul comes along and he says, It also, this hope also, this hope that we have while we wait for the coming of Jesus gives me the ability to overcome the power of sin that's all around me while I wait for the coming of my King. Both of these truths at the same time are meant to be an encouragement to us. And so, what do we kind of learn? I want to bring bring it home, two, two different things for you here. When I study these passages, one of the first things that I look at is the opposite of optimism. It's the opposite. Optimism says just everything's going to be great, everything's going to be fine even if it's not based on a reality, just believe the best and do the best. That's not what the Bible's saying. What I learn about hope is that hope is hard. Like really hard. Look at how Peter describes it in verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. In all of this waiting, you can rejoice even though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and many different trials. Like you will walk through pain and suffering. Jesus promised this. There's no avoiding it. And what Peter is telling us is it's going to be really, really hard, but you can get through this. But man, we don't like to hear about that. We don't like waiting. We don't feel like waiting should be a part of what we have to do. Lewis Smedes describes it this way as he contrasts gratitude uh, with this type of hope. He says this, gratitude is the pleasure of hope come true. That's so, such a true statement. I hope for something, and I'm grateful when that hope comes true. Hope is the pain of gratitude postponed. Gratitude comes easy, its own steam. Whenever we know someone has given us a real gift, hope comes harder, sometimes with our back against the wall, latent with doubts that what we hope for will ever come. Gratitude always feels good. It's as close to joy that we can come to in this world. Hope can feel unbearable. When we passionately long for what we do not have and it is taking too long to come, we are restless like a farmer waiting for rain after an August without a drop. And you've been there. I can tell you that you've been there. We've all had moments where life changes, news comes, we weren't expecting, we didn't want and now we find ourselves waiting for test results. We find ourselves waiting for a decision to be made that impacts our life. We find ourselves waiting for a season to finally come to an end. It's no joke, That it's, it's, it's no coincidence that I was writing this sermon on Wednesday when I got a phone call. And many of you know that things can change just with the answering of a call. One of my closest friends in the world began to tell me, about somebody else that we both love very, very dearly, who had got a call that nobody wants to get. His young wife had found they'd found tumors all over her ovaries and abdominal wall. This is someone who's like a ah, this is someone who's like a really good friend of mine. You've been there, right? Like, now we're waiting, right? They, they go in, they get some tests, and now we're waiting. they got to get more tests this coming week, and we're waiting to hear, like, please, God, please. Like, like, I don't know how people get through these things without hope. And as I talked to my friend, I said, how are you doing? Like, how are you getting through this? The response that came back to me, all that came to my mind was, the Lord gives the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Without hope that he's coming again, that he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. I don't know how you get through the waiting. But it's never promised to be easy, but it's always worth the wait because he's coming. The second thing that I learned as I study this idea of biblical waiting is that when we're called to wait for the coming of our Savior, it's never passive. Waiting is always active. Hope is active. And Paul reminds us of that. Like, hey, you're, you're, he's coming. But until he gets here, like I need you to live as though you believe that hope is true. So that when everybody around you that's completely buried in this avalanche watches you dig up, they stop digging down because they know where your hope is. And so this Advent, as we wait for the coming of our King, that doesn't end on Christmas morning. It ends on the day in which Jesus returns. But while we wait, it won't be easy. But we've been given a living hope that helps us to endure the difficulty and the pain and the suffering and the waiting. And we've been given a blessed hope that helps us overcome all the temptations that want to pull us away from that very hope. And so let me ask you, how's your hope? How's your hope? I mean, is the glass half empty, is it half full, or is it different than that? Is it, regardless of if it's half empty or half full, whether he gives or whether he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, because he's coming, and I can believe that because he's already come. My hope is rooted in a reality that he's come, and I can believe he's coming again. And while I wait, I wait with hope. Let's pray. God, waiting is really, really hard. We, just, we want it to be better. But while we wait, we're so grateful for the hope that you've given to us. You did not leave us here in the waiting to just be overcome by our pain, but we can overcome our pain and our temptations because of the hope that we have that's rooted in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His first coming redefines our future and we cling to that redefined future while we wait. So God, while it's hard and it's difficult and it's tempting, we wait with a hope. And together, as your children, we cry out to you, come Lord Jesus, come. We ask you for these blessings. We trust you for this hope in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Let's respond to God's word this morning. Let's stand and sing.